Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. This morning at Mark chapter 4, last few verses in there, and some of you may be wondering, uh, we're skipping some parables here that are in chapter 4. I love the parables. I think we did the parables last spring for a bit, and so uh, rather than repeat some of those, we're going to say we're going to focus on the action that's taking place in Mark, and so we're going to be skipping those uh, parables, and I would suggest maybe reading them through the week, Uh, but we're going to look at the last part of chapter 4, Jesus calming the storm. So this is in Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him to bless as we open this passage together. We pray that once again you would breathe upon your people. You, uh, you poured out your spirit 2,000 years ago at Pentecost. Uh, you have, for those of us who walk with you, uh, poured out your spirit upon us. But we pray this morning you would pour out your spirit in a special way to give us an understanding of this text and how it points us to who Jesus truly is and what that means for our lives no matter what we're going through. Would you bless us and would you be with us? And Lord, I pray that you would be with me. Uh, The storm that I have going on is not external, it's internal. So I pray that you would speak peace to my soul, that you would enable me to be calm and that you would enable me to hold forth words that are way too heavy for my feeble arms to lift. Would you bless us? Would you bless our time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. There we go. Okay, I would need to start by saying something I think is pretty important about this passage. And that is what we just read happened in real history. This is not a myth. It's not a metaphor. This really happened. Had you been there that day with your GoPro, you could have filmed the whole thing and shown all your family and friends. If you'd been there and had a newsreel you know, camera, you, would have, you could have filmed all of this taking place as it was taking place. This happened in real space-time history. This is an eyewitness account of something that really took place. And the reason I say this is because to many people, this seems pretty fanciful. It's the stuff of legends and fairy tales and mythology. But this is 
a real account. And it gives all of the details of having been a real account. And as you read through the commentaries, this is something they say. This is a firsthand account from somebody who was there. Probably Peter telling Mark who wrote it down because Peter's here to witness all of these things taking place. And some of the details that people point out is it happened in the evening. That's an unnecessary detail. The pillow in the stern. There being other boats. Uh, Mark is the only one who tells us there were other boats. The other ones just kind of focus on the one boat. Um, the water was already filling the boat. These are, these are eyewitness details that would be seen by somebody who was really there. And the reason this matters is because in the modern world, we look at passages like this and say, miracles couldn't have happened. And of course, they're looking at these things before Jesus showed up and said, miracles couldn't happen. And we look at this particular thing of Jesus calming the storm, and people would say, well, that, that's not possible. And prior to it happening, the apostles probably thought, this isn't possible for this to happen. C.S. Lewis wrote this about the really... Another passage is in John, but it's true, I think, of all the New Testament passages in, in the Gospels. Uh, and he was an Oxford professor and a leading expert on myth and mythology. So he read fairy tales and legends his whole life. But this is what he said. He said, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know that not one of them is like this. Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, and then he went on to say maybe it could have some errors, but it's an attempt to report what happened. But he says it's pretty close up to the facts, or else some unknown writer in the second century without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. So what he's saying is if, if these people were writing in the during their time period, about an event like this, they wouldn't have included those details. They wouldn't have included any of the, the eyewitness account. They would have focused on something different because that's the way everybody thought to write back then. They didn't think to write what we now have as modern, novelist, realist, realistic writings, right? So he's saying, this is unlike anything else. It is a report of something that really happened. This is not man-made. This is an attempt to tell the truth. So... We are going to process this by using the questions in the text to help us think a little bit about how we're supposed to encounter this and, and read this. So the first question is this. Who, who is this? Um, now, often we approach the Bible uh, the way that I go to CVS. Is I've got some type, some type of symptom, some sort of ailment. And so I go to CVS to find something that will cure that little problem I have. And we kind of approach the Bible like that. It's like, show me something that's going to help me deal with wealth or with, you know, finances or show me something that's going to deal with wisdom or struggles. And that's okay to thumb through your Bible and try to find those things. But that's not what, Paul, what uh, Mark is doing here. He's not saying, hey, when you face the storms of your life, then Jesus is going to be there and he's going to calm them all. I wish I could make that promise to you. I wish the scripture was making that promise. But that's not a promise that's in this passage. In fact, what Mark is doing is something different. He has something bigger in mind. It's to bring us into an encounter with God. And that, that encounter may bring relief, but it also might disturb us. It might disrupt us. It might change the course of our life. And the climax of the passage is not that Jesus calms the storm, because that would be nice and say, oh, that's the climax. Jesus calms the storm. But that's not it. It's the last, last verses here where he says, who then 
is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? And the question that, he, that the apostles, the disciples are asking on the boat has already been answered for us. Because that's the way Mark's gospel begins. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But the problem is, is we all bring all kinds of baggage with us to even that assumption about what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. So I may have shared this story. I can't remember if I did or not, but it was on my mind too if I didn't. But uh, over uh, Christmas, Paul got to sing at the Epcot Center Festival of Lights. Right? I think I did talk to you about that. So I, I mentioned that at one point. But I didn't mention kind of what, was, what it was like to be there and sit there. So I'm sitting here in Epcot Center, which is Disney, and you know, there's a lot of things in Disney movies that I don't agree with. So, but I'm sitting at the Festival of Lights, the processional candles thing, and they have this famous Tony Award-winning dancer and performer up there, and she's reading the gospel story. And I thought, this is fantastic. They're reading the Bible in Epcot Center. This is really cool. So we're, she's reading from, you know, the, the, the angel appearing to Mary and saying that he's the son of God. He'll be, the, he'll be called holy, the son of God. She reads about the angels and glory to God in the highest. They read the whole thing, and I'm thinking, this is, wow, this is better than I thought it was going to be. This is really cool. And then they got to a part where the, the person who's reading, I don't know if it was scripted or something this person had written, but it was their version of a homily. You know, like kind of what a pre they're preaching a sermon after reading all the passages. And at this point, uh, they dialed down everything. <laughs> it's like that Jesus is, has merely human hands and merely human mind, merely human heart. He's merely a man like you and me. But boy, did he do amazing things. And I thought, okay, you just, now we're at Disney World. Um, <laughs> and the way that they made it sound is like they, he was just a super duper great guy, a little bit along the lines of Mr. Rogers, you know. And, and so Jesus' main line would be, would you love, could you love, won't you love your neighbor? You know, I mean, that, that would kind of be the way it would work out. And, and I realized I can't be mad at her because she's doing what everybody does. She's trying to put Jesus into a conceptual box. You know, that's, Disney has, a, all the people who wrote whatever that was, they have a conceptual box of saying the son of God is somebody who's really a great human being, maybe a step above the rest of us in his consciousness, but he's not something more. And so even Jesus' disciples here had a conceptual box, right? They did. So they had discarded the Pharisees' conceptual box, which was he's a demon, he's got a demon. They, that's, that can't be true. But then they started with a kind of a small box, the way a lot of people do is he's a rabbi. And then they realized, wait, Jesus is just too big to fit into the rabbi box. He just crushes it. Well, maybe Jesus is more than a rabbi. Maybe he's a prophet like in the Old Testament. So they have a bigger box, and Jesus just flattens that one too, and here in this passage, they're, they're beginning to get an inkling. Uh, a lot of the commentaries say that this is, he's, maybe he's the Messiah. And so they've got a Messiah box maybe that's working for them. And then Jesus calms the storm and it completely flattens uh, all of their concerns. Well, like, who is this? And he's not a rabbi, he's more than a prophet. Maybe he's the Messiah, but he's got to be more than this. There's something huge that's happening here. And, and the reason they're asking the question is because what Jesus does is he stands and he speaks to the storm, peace be still, and it's the opposite of a nuclear blast going off where there's, there's catastrophe. Instead of catastrophe, there's peace across the landscape. The wind's gone. The waves have died down. It is a dead calm, a flat sea. And if you've ever been to, seen a storm on the ocean front, you know that the waves keep lapping up for a long time. It's not dead calm immediately. But it's almost like Jesus is the epicenter of peace, and he just speaks, and it spreads 
across everything. And they look at this, and they know something incredible is going on because Jesus has power over the sea, and the only person in Scripture has power over the sea is God himself. And so that's why we read Psalm 107 earlier. Psalm 107, verse 28 and 29 Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. These are some sailors at sea. There's a big storm that comes up. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Do you think that's just a prophecy of what's going on, or do you think there were some people back then that went through that too? Probably people back then, but it anticipated something greater. And that's what Mark wants us to see. He wants us to see what the apostles saw and, and to ask that question, who is this that the wind and the sea, even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus acts with divine purpose and authority over the sea. Jesus is the king on the throne of heaven and has authority and power and jurisdiction over everyone and everything. There are no borders to his kingdom. There's no end to his reign. There are no limits to his redemptive reach. When Jesus speaks, the world moves and responds. He easily pushes away what forcefully pushes us around. He has power everywhere we are powerless. He is able to save to the uttermost. Jesus is the epicenter of peace to the world. Who is this? This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity in the flesh. And whether you can wrap your mind around it or not, that was who was in the boat with the apostles, with the disciples that day. And when the Bible talks about us believing in Jesus, that's the person we're putting our faith and trust in, somebody who has that kind of authority and power in the real world. So that's the first question. Who is this? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Second question came earlier in the passage. Um, Jesus asked, why are you so afraid? Now, some people see that merely as a rebuke, you know, of, of some sort, as in, what's wrong with you, are you, are you that weak? Why are you so afraid? It, it feels like a complaint, but I think Jesus' rebuke, Jesus' rebuke, if it's such a thing, always pushes to self-examination and not to shame. So let's take it as a real question. Why are you so afraid? And that question to me is fascinating because Mark does not record Jesus asking that question, why are you so afraid, while they're in the middle of the storm. Now, Matthew and Luke have that question appear while the storm's still raging. But Mark, for whatever reason, has pulled that out of when the storm's still raging to after the fact, I think to highlight the reality that for most of us, in, in the midst of a storm, if Jesus were to ask, why are you so afraid? What's the answer? Storm, you know, uh, fight or flight, amygdala in the middle of my brain, I'm scared, I'm having a physical reaction, you know, I'm, I'm tense. I'm, and in fact, they're so tense at that point, they're, they're, they're kind of mouthing off to Jesus, don't you even care, right? So they're just angry, frustrated, they're scared. But I think he pulls this out to highlight something, uh, and it's asked in the present tense, not why were you so afraid, but after, why are you so afraid? And I think he's getting at something that's really important for us is, why are you afraid? Why are we, why are you so afraid in every area of our lives? You know, like it's part of something that we carry. Why are you afraid all the time in so many situations or in no situation at all? You just have this, we carry this fear around with us. So what's the answer? Why are you afraid? 
When are you afraid? There's this kind of fear inside of us that's just there, right? We're scared of the future. I don't know what it holds. I see the news. I don't want to watch the news, but the news just kind of intrudes upon my life everywhere I, where I go. So I'm scared because I don't know what's going to happen because the news tells me bad stuff's going to happen. Or maybe it's not the news. I'm, I'm fearful of a relationship. I'm fearful for health. I'm scared because of finances. There's something in us um, that makes us afraid of the world around us. And uh, when we're not scared, it's because often we feel self-sufficient and we're in manageable situations. I can manage this. I know how to handle this. You know, I've done this for years. I'm good. But then something happens in life and you find that, you know, the, the self-sufficient you, self-sufficiency you felt, all of a sudden your self lets you down. Uh, it could be your ankles. It could be your knees, your back. It could be uh, your mind, your heart your team, your family, whoever it happens to be, there's so all of a sudden there's something I can't control. And I've realized I'm powerless in that. So we try to stick to what we can control because we fear. And what we, ends up happening is our fear begins to control us. It controls us. So uh, the passage, there are really two things here that we can draw out when it comes to fear, being scared. Two results is one is when we're scared, we don't do as we ought to do. There's something we don't do. I'm afraid to step into that. So there's an ought to do something, but I can't bring myself even to try. I can't attempt it because I'm too afraid. I'm too afraid to have that conversation. I'm too afraid to extend that invitation. I'm too afraid to initiate something because if I knew it would succeed, I would do it. But I don't know if it's going to succeed. And that's kind of scary, and I don't want it to be embarrassing, and I'm scared about what other people think. So the good we ought to do, we don't do, because we're afraid. We're afraid of what could happen. So, you know, there are times when you know you should speak, and you don't, because you're scared of how that might be received. You're afraid of the consequences and what people might think. But there's another time when we're afraid. It's not just the the fear that leads us to act, but sometimes there's the fear that leads us to overreact. We see that a little bit in the, the passage here with the, uh, the disciples' fear. Um, don't you care? And so there's an outcome that you can't bring about, and so you maybe lash out. And we say, I want it to go my way. And so basically kind of what they're saying to Jesus here is, what good are you if you let us all drown? <laughs> you know, if I'm lashing out, what good is this? And this is something that's so important that needs to be done because maybe God doesn't care or he's not involved in this. I need to take matters into my own hand and I need to force this to happen the way that I want it to happen to get my fears to stop. And so we do this. And the place we do this most often is in our relationships with people. We're afraid. So, young lady, um, college student, uh, she was afraid of losing her man. So she made decisions to try to keep her man, and it didn't go so well for her. Nine months later, she's dealing with the, uh, that decision to try to keep this man, right? Other ways that this happens, uh, we want people to come in line with what we're doing, and sometimes we drive them away. Um, I've threatened, I've been a threat to my children at times because I'm afraid of decisions that they might possibly make. And so I come on too strong to them. And it takes a while for them to forgive my interest in their lives because I was afraid and that came out on them. We struggle with that, right? We say too much to people. We want to force them 
You know, as a man, I want to be the cool dad. Um, and then there are other times I want to debate my children and get them to do what I want them to do. Um, sometimes I'll, I shame them. Sometimes I bring out the arsenal of all of my weapons. And the big one is, your mother says. That's the big one. <laughs> right? And then eventually you realize, I can't play this role. This is more hurtful to my children than it is helpful. So I read a story in the past couple of weeks. There's a man who, whose son wrestles with sexual identity, and somewhere along the line he realized, I'm not going to be the one to reach my son. So he tried so hard. Every, he pulled out all the arsenals, all, all, the, all the things in his arsenal, everything he could think of to say to his son to try to fix him. And he said, I realized I can't fix him. And so what God is calling me to do is to love him the best I can and to be there with him and for him. I've said what I can say, and now I've just got to leave it in God's hands. So that went on for years. And this is what he wrote. He said, um, wonderfully enough, he said a transformation began in his son a year or more ago and continues today. His son found the Bible again. And he began to study and ask his mom and dad questions about it. And he's attending church periodically and he's still seeking. And that's hard. That's hard to say because I'm afraid for my children. I'm afraid for my people I love, my siblings, other, my friends. And I want to say the thing that will force them to do what I want them to do so that my fears will go away. Instead of trusting God and saying, God... You're a much better lover of people's souls than I am. I entrust this to you. I mean, you look at this passage here. It's kind of a fascinating thing. Is Why are they on the, why are they on the sea to begin with? Because that was Jesus' idea. Where is he when the storm begins? He's asleep. Where is he while the storm is raging? He's asleep. And when uh, he only wakes up and speaks is when the disciples come to, them, come to him in their need and ask him to come and be a part of it. And even if it's harsh, even if it's you know, a bit shrill, uh, they ask him to come, and then he stands. And part of that is really to show us that it's his timing. He, he was Lord over the storm before it was there. He was Lord of the storm while he appeared to be asleep. He was Lord of the storm even when he spoke. He's the Lord of the storm. He's, he has power over it. And so he has power over the things that are going on for us because of who he is. But I think part of why he let them go through this is because they needed a deeper foundation, a transcendent foundation to handle all of life, something that they knew was true regardless of what's going on in my situation around me. This is who this Jesus is, right? So in chapter 4, verse 40, Jesus asks another question. He says, do you still not have faith? So it's not, he's saying it's not physiological. We get the physiological thing. You can't help that. But he, he turns it into a question about faith. Do you still not have faith? And, in, and again, this is not intended to give insult. It's intended to give insight into ourselves. And what am I believing? What do I believe at this moment where I am terrified about this? And, you know, at some level, you know, you have to ask, why is Jesus asking the question? What did they not believe here? Right? What did they not believe? And so maybe one of the things they didn't believe is that Jesus was really the Messiah and he had to finish his mission. So if they're on a boat in the middle of the water, Jesus can't go down in the boat because he's got to finish the Messiah's mission. God would never let that happen. That could be it. Or it could be that all the things that they had seen should lead them to believe that Jesus had power over disaster. 
He's had power over disease. He's had power over demons. He should have power over disaster. Maybe they should have connected these dots and believed if Jesus has power everywhere else, he surely has power here. I can trust him and believe him. Or it could be that Jesus, uh, they, they didn't think Jesus really cared, which is their question is, don't you care that we're perishing? So it could be any of those things. It could be at some level all of those things. Uh, but Jesus is... Um, addressing that and saying that some level you did not believe you didn't trust so in the middle of the boat they encounter a Jesus that is bigger than the storm and they realize that somehow the Jesus in the boat with them was not the Jesus they thought he was their faith didn't grow bigger but faith's object became bigger and they realized I can trust him in anything and and so after this takes place it uses an interesting term. It says that they feared, they had more fear encountering Jesus than they had scare of the storm. And it's two different words in the Greek. What, the word for scare is sometimes translated as cowardly. And it's part of your weakness. I'm weak and therefore I have, I, I'm frail and so I, I have scared going on. The word fear, phobos in, in the Greek, often has to do with a, a reverential sense of awe. There's something huge and big, important that I'm encountering here. And just like scared can control your life, fear, fear of the Lord uh, brings a controlling influence in our lives. And so they needed to have a deeper understanding, what Jesus says is faith here, or some would say a proper fear of the greatness of who Jesus is, so that it would overwhelm all of their other fears. Jesus has the power to overcome things that threaten to overcome us. And they needed to realize that. Uh, so there are three things I think that are, we need to say are true that are flowing out of this passage for us that we can cling to. One, Jesus cares. God is aware of what's going on and what happens to you and what happens to me. Um, even, even if we're in the middle of a storm, he cares about what's going on. How do you know that Jesus loves you? Not because he removes you from your situation, but because he has removed your sin and its guilt from you. That's how you know. It's not because, it's not, you know, that, it's not based on your circumstances and your situation. It's based on his circumstances, his situation he went through when he was on the cross. It's Jesus took our sins to show us that your sins will never get in the way. And so whatever you're going through in life, I love you in the middle of this, no matter what. That is a hard foundational truth, is if you're in Christ, it is impossible for Jesus to love you less at the moment of your struggle than when he was on a cross 2,000 years ago dying with you in mind to pay for your sins. Richard Sibbs said this. He said, we have this for a foundational truth, that there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. R.C. Sproul said this. He said, even if the Christian cannot rejoice in his circumstances, if he finds himself passing through pain, sorrow, or grief, he can still rejoice in Christ. We rejoice in the Lord, and since he never leaves us or forsakes us, we can rejoice always. So he does know, and he cares. Um, second, is Jesus controls uh, Jesus was in much, as much in control when they set out as when the storm's raging, as when everything got calm. And this is true of you too, is Jesus is in complete control. And if there's something that's happening in your life and you think, don't you care? The answer is yes. 
But we often base whether or not we think God cares on our circumstances. But that's not always the case. And so as you look through this passage, you see that um, he's in control of our best days and our worst days, and often our worst days, we feel like our worst, are preparing us for something that's coming on the horizon. We'll talk about that in a second. And then the third is Jesus really is in the boat with us. Alistair Begg uh, said this. He said, God does not prevent God does not prevent storms from coming, but he is a God who is both present through the storm and sovereign over them. So this is not a promise to remove your storm, but it's a promise that he will be with you in the middle of it. And, it mean, and faith does not mean that it's going to go your way, but faith is the assurance that it will go Jesus' way and that his way is best no matter what you're going through and to be able to trust that. So Elizabeth Elliot, she said, God is God. And since he is God, he is worthy of my worship and service. I will find rest nowhere else but in his will. And that will is necessarily, infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notion of what he is up to. Do you ever have this thought go through your head that maybe um, if you were God, you would do things differently, right? You've thought that? That's an interesting assumption, isn't it? You know, I think we have that past our mind. And I think one of the things that we assume is that, that the difference between me and God is he has all the power and I have none. But the reality is, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways and his thoughts higher than our thoughts. So what that means is, not only would you have to have omnipotence, have all the power, You'd have to have all the knowledge. You'd have to be omniscient. You'd have to be eternal. You'd have to have all the righteousness. You'd have to have all of the understanding. You'd have to have all of the affection and all of the love. And then maybe you could be God. But you're not really. That's not heresy. I'm just using this as an illustration. Okay, so good. So, so the response is, if you were God, if you had all the power, all the knowledge, all the understanding, if you were omnipresent, if you were all the things that God is, do you know what you would, do you know what you would do differently? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Because he sees everything. He knows everything. You wouldn't do anything different just because you had all the power if you were God. So what I'm saying is God's ways are perfect. And because he has set up things the way that are going on, we can trust him. Let me walk you through this, how this looks. Judson Cornwall gives a great picture of being able to trust God in the middle of all the broken things that are going on. It's like, why are these things going on? Here's the picture. So in World War II, there was a, a contest uh, for somebody to paint a picture that was the greatest depiction of what peace actually is. Right? So you can imagine people doing that in World War II. It's like, we want to see pictures of peace, paintings of peace. So uh, all the paintings were functionally of like pasture land, mountains in the distance, you know, maybe a beach scene. It's stuff that brings us peace that way. But there was one that was completely different than all of the other uh, paintings. And this one was of a huge waterfall. And the waterfall is just, just gushing over the side. And it's a storm. So there are dark clouds. Rain is tumbling down. It's a picture of chaos. It's a picture of like being in the middle of a storm and not having any control. But right in the middle of the waterfall, there was a branch sticking out. And perched on the branch was a bird in full song in the middle of the storm, 
in the middle of the waterfall, the world falling apart around it, and it's at peace, and it's singing. That's the picture. I have him. He's in the boat with me. He has all the power. I have none, but I have him. How does this look functionally? Well, Ed Welch is a Christian counselor, and he gives a very human picture of this in his own life. And he says it's by humbly placing faith in this God made flesh, who is our great high priest, who has struggled in every way just as we are, been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin, but he has power. And we say, does he care? Of course he does. So Ed Welch talked about this. He, he admitted that he has a, a, a lifelong struggle with anxiety. And he said, I had an anxiety assault recently. I was facing perhaps the worst fear I could imagine. And there was nothing I could do about it. I felt humbled before the Lord. It resulted in a simple prayer. Lord, you are God and King. I am your servant. I know you owe me nothing. For some reason, you have given me everything in Jesus. I trust you. And please give me grace to trust you. So, he's in that moment. But then a few moments later, he felt he had to pray. And so, his, 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 he said his prayer moved even closer to what the scripture says. And he says, Father, forgive me for always wanting things my way. By your mighty hand, you have created all things. And by your mighty hand, you have rescued your people. I want to live under your mighty hand. Please have mercy. And then he goes on to say this. It sounds very simple. And it is, but it changes everything. This is the secret to dealing with fears and anxiety. The words of God and the comfort of the Spirit become much more obvious when we, re- we are repentant and humble before Him. No deals. If you spare me from this suffering, then I will. No, just simple trust. We trust Him because He is God, not because He is going to immediately remove our anxieties or our fear-provoking situation. So the disciples are on this boat and the storm comes up and Jesus dispels the storm. They needed this. They needed this to happen in their lives because of what Jesus was asking of them. Right? They had seen Jesus handle disease. They had seen Jesus overcome demons. They now saw Jesus overcome disaster and later on they're going to stand before something that's really hard for all of us, opposition from other people. It doesn't matter how scary demons are and diseases and disaster is. People are scary. And so they were going to stand before people who oppose the name of Jesus. And they stood, when you see record of this in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, they're standing before these people who want them dead. They don't want anything to do with Jesus. They want to stamp out this, this name. And before these Jewish leaders, they said, judge for yourselves whether or not we should obey men or God. Where do you think that courage came from? And seeing a God who can overcome disease and demons and disaster. But they saw something else, didn't they? Because when Jesus went into the tomb, three days later he came out. So not only had they seen Jesus overcome disease and demons and disaster, they saw him overcome death itself. And so they knew, if I die here, I'm going into the presence of Jesus. I don't have to worry. I can sing on the branch in the middle of the waterfall with a storm raging around me and I will be safe because I have him with me. I know this Jesus. I can stand on a branch because he went to a tree. 
I can go into danger because he came forth from the tomb. I can live in complete confidence because of what Jesus has done for me. He loves me. He cares for me. He's with me. And there's nothing that can happen in my life that is outside of his control. I can trust him. And you can too. Let's pray. Oh, you have promised to be with us. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. You've promised to go with us. And so we cling to that. We cling to to the, the promise that no matter where we go, no matter what we do, you are there with us. And that's all we got. That's all I have is your presence, your power, your death, burial, and resurrection for me and the application of that to me day to day. Help me to walk by faith. And and those who are in here who trust in you, we pray that you would help them to walk by faith in you. And for those of you, those of people in here, Lord Jesus, who have the sense that uh, this is myth, we pray that you would show them that this is real. And for those who wonder if you could care for someone like them, we pray that you would show them that you can and you do. And we pray that you would do something wonderful in their lives. Would you bless us as we sing this one last song? We pray it in your holy name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.